Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff I Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. So in honor of Pride Month, uh, we're doing a bit of a throwback with the feminist anthology, This Bridge Called My Back, writings by radical women of color, first released in 1981. But even though it's a bit older, it remains one of the most cited works of feminist writing to this day. And it includes art and a range of contributors of color from all kinds of backgrounds and experiences. Black women, Native American women, Chicana women, Asian American women, uh, so many people. I read the 40th anniversary edition edited by Shari Moraga and Gloria Anzaldúa. Uh, so a handful of the original essays were not included um, and a few new ones took their place, which they kind of talk about in the front. Um, it opens with a preface from Moraga that reads, The phenomenon of a 40-year-old, this bridge called my back, may be best understood as a document of the living legacy of forebears bound not by blood, but by the bridge of intracultural women of color consciousness, the living breadth of which far exceeds the pages and geographies of this book. Um, and here's another quote from the preface. This is three black women saying no, no to impunity, no to the murder of black and brown folks by police. This is the birth of the Black Lives Matter movement. This is Standing Rock saying no to the Dakota Access Pipeline and indigenous activists blocking Enbridge Energy Line 3 construction in Minnesota. This is a Me Too movement, first voiced by black activists from the Bronx, Tarana Burke. This is Berta Caceres Linka, murdered in 2016, defending her land and water rights in Honduras. And this is how Nani Ketrask, resounding and unequivocal no, we are not American. We will die as Hawaiians. We will never be American. This is women of color feminisms spearheading radical action on the ground in virtually every area of anti-globalization and human rights movements, including world poverty, violence against women, and trans liberation. This is intersectionality as living practice. Which I feel like is a really good thesis statement to start out with. And that's sort of, so this is the revisiting of the most recent edition. Um, and it is interesting seeing this work as a living tapestry because, because it was first published in the 1980s and has had a few new editions. You can see what has changed and what hasn't. And at some points, it's sort of eerie and prophetic because um, we know what happens. Um, not that the signs weren't there at all. It's just strange reading about them 
uh, and knowing what's to come and kind of seeing those iterations. Yeah, and just to throw it back, so the 40th edition was copywritten in 2021, and there's been, again, several renditions. So the added forwards and the added uh, end is a lot. It keeps going, it keeps going, and it's necessary. But uh, I thought it was interesting because I did want to go back to a 1980 forward where she talks about being tired and how that is kind of stretched again into where we are today, especially for women of color, especially for the Latina and Black communities and the indigenous communities, how tiring it can be continuing to still prove themselves to white women. Um, And she writes in this uh, that, I'm ready to go home now. I am ready. Very tired. I couldn't sleep at all at night. Missing home. There's a deep fatigue in my body this morning. And she's talking about going to do pretty much a pitch meeting with this. Um, And she talks about it. Another meeting, again, walking into a room filled with white women, a splattering of women of color around the room. And then it says below, how can we this time not use our bodies to be thrown over a river of tormented history to bridge the gap? Uh, Barbara says last night, a bridge gets walked over. Yes, over and over again. So that's kind of that theme of it's necessary but once again, having to do so. And yeah, this was written in 1980, 40 years ago, and it makes me sad that we have to come to this point. But that feeling of continually having to prove yourself again and again and again as a woman of color doesn't stop and hasn't stopped. And and I can't imagine, as she wrote, I'm done. I'm, it's, it, why are we here again? Why, this, why is this still relevant about the fact that they have already done this work? They did this work <laughs> 40 years ago. And people before them, women of color, both before them, marginalized communities before them have done this work already. But we're still here again. And at least they have that this as a piece of evidence of like, yeah, we did it. Here, we're going to add more work to it so you understand what this is. But I I thought it was really important that we preface, this is a heavy book. Uh, This is something that just shows, honestly, kind of wanting to let white women (laughs) know, A, women of color, marginalized women, people of color are tired. Uh, B, uh, trying to rally uh, marginalized people of color to being like, we've been there, we're there, we know, we know it's tiring and we feel you. We feel you, we see you. Yeah, it's... It's it's a lot. It's a hard read. It's definitely a necessary read. It's really um, everyone's really honest in it um, and unflinching. It's hard to put a content warning on it, other than it is like topics like abuse and sexual assault are talked about, um, racial trauma. Definitely, nothing has gone into too in depth, but at the same time, it's still pretty like painful. Yeah. If that makes it sense, is. it is. It is right? very. Uh, on top of the metaphors and the literal, um, the letters that talk about the battles, pleading with uh, those who would call themselves allies to truly look at this, uh, dealing with our own internalized privilege and uh, racism. Like There's so much to be said. Uh, with all that said, and yes, this is tiring, we get it, but if you're a white woman and you see you, uh, or a white non-binary person and you identify as such, I would encourage you to read this and to listen, um, whether or not you think you are tired, because I think it's very, very relevant to that, because you need to understand, oh, you think you're tired? Here, we need you to understand the intersectionality of what feminism has been, has become, has been trying to be different, but we have to still play the game. So I'll put that under the trigger warning. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And it's very like, you know, we always put these into themes, and this one was really hard because this one is such a good example of intersectionality. 
it's sort of like, yes, this is about sexism, but it's also about this, and also about this, also about this. Um, so yeah, it's very, very thought-provoking. It does um, a really good job of making you feel and empathize with the authors. Uh, and a lot of times, um, we do struggle with picking out quotes from books like this, because it, it's you want to paint like a good picture. Um, and it, you're like, well, I, I don't, I don't want to give too much time to one thing and not too much time for another and all that stuff. And this one was really, really tough. Um, because you didn't want to take things out of context, right? And some of it's poetry that we don't want to butcher. Uh, some things were just not the right people to talk about the topics. Um, but uh, yeah, we also don't want to give more weight to one issue or one person unknowingly. Um, so that being said, uh, including quotes from some of these pieces without the whole thing would be a disservice. So again, yes, highly recommend reading the whole book. Definitely our conversation around some of these things has evolved. Uh, but right. overall, it's still incredibly powerful and, and worth reading. Right. Yeah, and added to that, uh, again, Moraga does say in her newer forward about the fact, like, with cancel culture, with feeling like all these things. And, and we have our opinions about what cancel culture truly is. So that's in itself. But coming back to remember, this was written in 1980, where language has not evolved to where we are today to be more inclusive, thank God. Um, and at this point in time, if there's a word we say that you're like, what did you just say? We don't say that anymore. We get it. But it's part of the original, uh, the writings, and we are not going to change. <laughs> No. <laughs> <laughs> or edit or uh, censor that. So if that comes to a point, please understand this is where we are. And it's still the way they're talking, the way they're saying, it is important that it is said. Yes, 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 yes. Um, and uh, all of these, as we said, this is a book that's a lot of got a lot of people who contributed to it. We tried to attribute the quotes to everybody correctly, but some of the chapters have like a quote and then the person who wrote it. Right. So hopefully we got it all correct. I think we did, but just to put that out there too. Right. They do do a lot of like, hey, we're going to throw it back to the previous thing you wrote and we're going to quote that here to the new yes. thing and relaying to it. And you're like, okay, okay, that's great. But wait, what? <laughs> yeah, I just want to make sure I'm giving credit where it's due. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, we wanted to break this down into themes, but yes, as we said, they are all intersectional. Um we're going to start with abuse. And here's a quote from Naomi Little Bear Morena. Uh, her attacks were more subtle, hidden within the false shelter of her home. Instead of gangs of boys chasing her, her brother was the nightly intrusion. Instead of her young child body to masturbate with, as she closed her eyes, too numb and scared to speak. We both have no choice but to be survivors, though the fears are still there. Whenever I see a crowd of men, my heart sinks to my feet. Whenever I hear sudden noises, sudden crashing, anger, male noises, their very laughter is abrasive to my ears. I shrink inside, walk close to the walls of my soul. I look for a place to hide. I think I, I want to include that one because I feel like when you and I started, Samantha, we talked about, we had that mini series on trauma. And this is, when I read this, it just rang so true to me as well that I have those of like the laughing of men, especially, and just those memories of like freezing and, and having to survive. A horrific experience, and that was something that unfortunately did pop up throughout this this book of women having similar experiences. Right, and it does. I'd like that it began with talk about how her attacks were more subtle and hidden, because that's kind of that context of the big bad uh, wolf versus the reality. And this is more common than we know. And when we have it, it kind of diminishes what they go through. But you kind of feeling that experience. 
even if you haven't had that specific experience, you know that fear. Typically women, all women, all of those in the marginalized community have somewhat of that fear, um, know it. And then you have to take that bigger context of understanding that when we call it, when we hide it away as it is, this was hidden, it does a disservice to the, to the victims and survivors. But I did really uh, think that this level of understanding and, and wording was really appropriate um, for her experience and for many of our experiences. Uh, another one is written by Mitsuya Yamada, and she writes, Last year, for Asian segment of the ethnic American literature course I was teaching, I selected a new anthology entitled Ai, compiled by a group of outspoken Asian American writers. Uh, during the discussion of the long but thought-provoking introduction to this anthology, one of my students blurted out that she was offended by its militant tone and that as a white person, she was tired of always being blamed for the oppression of all the minorities. I noticed several of her classmates' eyes nodding in tacit agreement. A discussion of the militant voices and some of the other writings we had in the course ensued. Surely, I pointed out, some of these other writers have been just as, if not more militant, as the words in this introduction. Had they been offended by those also, but failed to express their feelings about them? To my surprise, they said they were not offended by any of the Black American, Chicano, or American Indian writings, but were hard-pressed to explain why when I asked for an explanation. A little further discussion revealed that they understood the anger expressed by the Black Americans and Chicanos, and they empathized with the frustrations and sorrow expressed by the American Indian, but the Asian Americans? Then finally, one student said it for all of them. It made me angry. Their anger made me angry because I didn't even know the Asian Americans felt oppressed. I didn't expect their anger. Um, and yeah, this was so right on. Again, thinking back on the 1980, the understanding of the model minority was prevalent. This is exactly what this is. And when we were talking about the Asian hate that has grown even more prevalent uh, as of the past five years, three years, it's always been there, but it's just been underlined. And this idea that an Asian person was seen as, okay, see, if you act like them, then you are welcome, which is this whole othering and uh, internal fight that happens within any marginalized communities, when, especially when it comes to race and ethnicity. And again, this is also why I had such a problem with Andrew Yang's take on why Asian Americans should show uh, that level of gratefulness to be in America. But this is exactly it. And she writes all through it talking about being a Japanese-American woman, um, trying to understand within her own culture, her parents being like, behave, behave, prove your worth being here. Um, and because she had unknowingly played that role, it even fed into her job. She talks about her job at the college. Um, and I thought back on that myself about growing up in mostly white communities, desperately seeking to be that model minority slash being invisible. And I've talked about that before, whether it's trauma, whether it really is race-based because I grew up in a white town and being seen as a token and thought of as, oh, cute, look at her. Uh, she's an Asian girl, she's different, but she's okay. And being told, even someone referenced me as white not too long ago and being othered into, well, I, you're not black, so you're white kind of conversation. I was like, but, but what? And these are very known, like they are uh, well-read 
what would be considered woke or aware uh, people saying that to me. And uh, it just, it's very much of like, okay, this is that same conversation of being invisible and being invisible, therefore being accepted because you're not uh, shake, rocking the boat. But at the same time, I'm only emphasizing and building back up this supremacy, white supremacies in, in their power. But yeah, I, it was, it's a lot. It's a lot of talk. And she does a great job because she has several um, pieces in here talking about breaking that down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. She does a great job on talking about the, like, the violence of invisibility and the destruction of invisibility. And, and this is sort of included at the top because there's a lot of talk about hatred and racism and sexism and homophobia um, and building up walls and burning up bridges throughout um, and how it is violence, even if maybe we don't classify that traditionally in our brain, but like this invisibility being violence. Um, so it's, yeah, very powerful and very frustrating, <laughs> frustrating read. So yeah, uh, we also did, yeah, I want to talk about more of the themes around racism, colonialism, and class. And here is a quote from Barbara Cameron. A theory in the flesh means one where the physical realities of our lives, our skin color, the land, our concrete we grew up on, our sexual longings, all fuse to create a politic born out of necessity. Here we attempt to bridge the contradictions in our experience. We are the colored in a white feminist movement. We are the feminists among the people of our culture. We are often the lesbians among the straight. We do this bridging by naming ourselves and by telling our stories in our own words. The theme echoing throughout most of these stories is our refusal of the easy explanation to the conditions we live in. Uh, Yeah. Uh, Again, it's just so, like, reading this and having it from the 80s and seeing where we are over time um, and having all these really, really thoughtful, pointed, and experienced uh, takes on intersectional feminism that have been happening and having the importance of telling these stories and being, controlling the narrative uh, is also something that we see throughout. There's also a lot of really honest takes on um, colorism from people who could be white passing, even though they aren't white and how they have to kind of grapple with that uh, very, very honest. And then a lot of discussion around shame, around race, and around customs, and around culture, and having to unlearn all of that. Snag a job is where America goes to hire, with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. 
Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank National Association, member FDIC. There's also in one in here a letter written by Audre Lorde to a fellow author uh, called An Open Letter to Mary Daly. So essentially, she was given a book by Mary Daly talking about mythology. And there's she at, at first thinks it's mainly centered around European and white women. Great, great. Just, you know, it happens. That, that is. But then there comes up a chapter where it talks about uh, African women and uh, genital mutilation. <laughs> she asks, so the question arises in my mind, Mary, do you ever really read the work of Black women? Did you ever read my words or did you merely finger through them for quotations which you thought might valuably support an already conceived idea concerning some old and distorted connection between us? This is not a rhetorical question. To me, this feels like another instance of the knowledge, chronology, and work of a woman of color being ghettoized by a white woman dealing only out of a patriarchal Western European frame of reference. But I thought it was such a call out because she comes back again, comes back to like, did you really read any work from black women? Or are you using this as a weapon against Black women? And I really want to know the reaction. I'm going to have to research this later because we don't have that. Because it was powerful. And I think we have done this, especially in the wake of Black Lives Matter. And I say we, I mean any non-Black person. To use words, whether it's hopefully like trying to be helpful and or whatnot, that fits our narrative thinking this is going to do better and not truly understanding, crediting, and and really empathizing with what is being written. And I thought it was so important because she puts she puts that right there. She's not hesitant. And she talks about the fact of how this is such a, a violation to her, not only as a colleague, but just as a woman of color, but just as a Black woman. Um, and I thought it was something really important that we need to to talk about, and again, that we still, again, it's Audre Lorde who passed away in 1992 in the early 90s, writing that and being published at this point in time, it's still relevant because it's still happening. Um, I hope Mary Daly took that and really grew with that. Uh, I couldn't imagine. I don't know if it's embarrassing for her. She didn't. Um, that's a call-in, though. That was the original call-in with the letters, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I think it's so important that we keep talking about stuff like that. Another example um, is uh, written by Barbara Cameron 
going on. I spent a part of my childhood feeling great sadness and helplessness about how it seemed that Indians were open game for the white people to kill, maim, beat up, insult, rape, cheat, or whatever atrocity the white people wanted to play with. There was also a rage and frustration that has not died. When I look back on reservation life, it seems that I spent a great deal of time attending the funerals of my relatives or friends of my family. During one year, I went to funerals of four murder victims. Most of my non-Indian friends have not seen a dead body or been to a funeral. Death was so common on the reservation that I did not understand the implications of the high death rate until after I moved away and was surprised to learn that I've seen more dead bodies than my friends will probably ever see in their lifetime. Um, yeah, and again, going back to with Audrey Lord, she talks about that to that letter. She's like, do you know the rates are much higher uh, for those to likely die to get breast cancer? All of these statistics in, in marginalized people. Because it is real and no one was associating and understanding or willing to associate or understand the implications of that stake. So that, yeah, the indigenous community for years have been screaming about the fact that they have been highly impacted by whatever, including the, um, the MMIW movement that has finally come to light in the last five years. And it's still not that popular and still not that understood. Yeah, yeah. And, and Cameron continues, it is inappropriate for progressive or liberal white people to expect warriors in brown armor to eradicate racism. There must be co-responsibility from the people of color and white people to equally work on this issue. It's not just my responsibility to point out and educate about racist activities and beliefs. Which has been a very big topic of conversation lately, and we've talked about it on this show, and absolutely, absolutely. Um, and as we've also been mentioning throughout this, there's a lot of thoughtful discussion about this whole idea and the history and damage of white feminism, which is something else that we have talked about. Um, but yeah, that's, that's really, really important. I think that, uh, I know we discussed before, but um, the damage you can do is a, a white liberal can do as being like, but I, I'm woke, right? So my work is done, but you're not actually doing anything. You just... Right say that. <laughs> right. And yeah, we're, I know we're going to talk about it more. Uh, Moreika actually talks about the fact that it is not my responsibility to do the work for you. And she calls that out uh, pretty clearly to the point um, of the author that we talked about, Yamada, talked about going to see Moreika <laughs> mm -hmm. at a convention in which she says that. She's like, do your work. We mm -hmm. should not be the ones to do this. We're tired. We know this. We feel this. We don't mm -hmm. have to research it. We are the research. Um, and I thought it was very like poignant that we remind once again, there is this level that you keep asking people to do the work. Again, things like this work that we are talking about currently, this is the work that you should be reading. It's there. <laughs> right. Yep. Yes. And we go on. Above all else. Our politics initially sprang from the shared belief that Black women are inherently valuable, that our liberation is a necessity not as an adjunct to somebody else's, but because of our need as human persons for autonomy. This may seem as obvious as to sound simplistic, but it is apparent that no other ostensible progressive movement has ever considered our specific oppression as a priority or worked seriously for the ending of that oppression. And that was from the uh, Kambahi River Collective. Um, yeah, again, we have another, uh, y'all, this is a long book. And I have marked <laughs> all through it. If you can't, I don't, Annie, you can see, I have all these markers in she there. She has a book. <laughs> <laughs> but talking about that fact is, when they think feminism, they stop with uh, middle class, upper class white women. 
in the story, but for marginalized communities, Latino, Black women, uh, when it comes to feminism, to truly be feminist, they have to break down every barrier and for everybody to have the freedom, for them to have that freedom and autonomy. Yes, yes. And again, it's like, it's it's very upsetting, but also, I don't want to say rewarding, but like you can tell, because like, yeah, this was like the 80s and you can see the progression of that thought and like to the Black Lives Matter movement of like people reading these works and then growing and then like thinking and then creating an organization, like the tapestry aspect of it is like, yes, yeah, very frustrating, but also pretty beautiful to see people working off each other's works and um, like going to each other's conferences and learning from each other. Another theme we want to touch on is queerness. Uh, and here's another quote from Moraga. When I finally lifted the lid to my lesbianism, a profound connection with my mother reawakened in me. It wasn't until I acknowledged and confronted my own lesbianism in the flesh that my heartfelt identification with and empathy for my mother's oppression due to being poor, uneducated, and Chicana was realized. My lesbianism is the avenue through which I have learned the most about silence and oppression, and it continues to be the most tactile reminder to me that we are not free human beings. You see, one follows the other. I had known for years that I was a lesbian, had felt it in my bones, had ached with the knowledge, gone crazed with the knowledge, wallowed in the silence of it. Silence is like starvation. Yeah, just the the way that's written is so, so profound. And as we said, there you can't separate all out all these issues because it's all intersectional. So it's interesting to sort of see uh, Moraga and how she personally experienced this and dealt with it in the intersections in her life. Yeah, and I think it's really important to remember once again that when they are speaking in this level, they feel in the core of them of understanding how close or how far they are from that freedom that they talk about, from that release, from that autonomous moment. And because it is an intersectional issue, they are so far away, even when one seems to be closer, it still feels far away because of the other, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, It goes on, uh, Cheryl Clark wrote, Men at all levels of privilege, of all classes and colors, have the potential to act out logistically, moralistically, and violently when they cannot colonize women, when they cannot circumscribe our sexual, productive, reproductive, creative prerogatives and energies. Uh, And honestly, like, it's one of those moments of like, yeah, men at all levels of privilege, all men, (laughs) let's go (laughs) ahead and just simplify that, have this moment of understanding that they they can. They have the ability and most likely some level of uh, condoning from society to be that. Yeah, so this was a quote about lesbianism and that uh, the author was kind of theorizing why it's such a threat to men and to white supremacy and why people seem to view it um, as, you know, something like, is wrong with these ladies, they're breaking society. Uh, and this was one of her quotes about that of like, oh, we can't control the reproductive rights. We can't basically tell women what to do and who to be with, control their bodies. Then that's a problem to this society and oppression. So lesbianism would be the biggest threat <laughs> outside yeah. of independent women in general. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also we wanted to talk about sexism, some themes, uh, some quotes around that. Here's a part of a poem from Jenny Lim, and I'm going to do my best not to butcher it. 
Why Must Women Stand Divided, Building the Walls That Tear Them Down, Jill of All Trades, Lover, Mother, Housewife, Friend, Breadwinner, Heart and Spade, A Woman is a Ritual, A House That Must Accommodate, A House That Must Endure, Generation After Generation of Wind and Torment, of Fire and Rain, A House with Echoing Rooms, Closets with Hidden Cries, Walls with Stretch Marks, Windows with Eyes. Yeah, I do love, it's really... I love that you've got all the different, like, you've got poetry, you have letters, you have essays, you have artwork. Like, I love seeing all these different creative outlets to express these ideas. Um, and you, you know that both Samantha and I do love poetry. So. Yes, we do. <laughs> Here's another quote from Moraga. A gay male friend of mine once confided to me that he continued to feel that on some level I didn't trust him because he was male, that he felt, really, if it ever came down to a battle of the sexes, I might kill him. I admitted that I might very well. He wanted to understand that source of my distrust. I responded, you're not a woman. Be a woman for a day. Imagine being a woman. He confessed that the thought terrified him because to him, being a woman meant being raped by men. He had felt raped by men. He wanted to forget what that meant. What grew from that discussion was the realization that in order for him to create an authentic alliance with me, he must deal with the primary source of his own sense of oppression. He must first emotionally come to terms with what it feels like to be a victim. If he or anyone were to truly do this, it would be impossible to discount the oppression of others, except by again forgetting how we have been hurt. And yet oppressed groups are forgetting all the time. I mean, that's, it's an interesting quote because for the fact that the first thing his thought, his mind went to was that must mean I will be raped or I will feel raped. I mean, that's pretty telling. right? And it is, I mean, that's always a privileged attitude to be like, well, I don't have to deal with that, so I'm going to forget that. Um, and I think that that's also a really important point that it's underscored throughout this book. Right. And once again, it's kind of that reminder of, everything being sexualized and the the use of women in general mm-hmm. is for that very purpose. Um, going on, he writes, This is the oppressor's nightmare, but it's not ex- exclusive to him. We women have a similar nightmare, for each of us in some way has been both oppressed and the oppressor. We are afraid to look at how we have failed each other. We are afraid to see how we've taken the values of our oppressors into our hearts and turned them against ourselves and one another. We are afraid to admit how deeply the man's words have been ingrained in us. To assess the damage is a dangerous act. I think of how even as a feminist lesbian, I have so wanted to ignore my own homophobia, my own hatred of myself for being queer. I have not wanted to admit that my deepest personal sense of myself has not quite caught up with my woman-identified politics. I have been afraid to criticize lesbian writers who choose to skip over these issues in the name of feminism. In 1979, we talk of old gay and butch and femme role as if they were ancient history. We toss them aside as merely patriarchal notions. And yet, the truth of the matter is that I have sometimes taken society's fear and hatred of lesbians to bed with me. I have sometimes hated my lover for loving me. I have sometimes felt not woman enough for her. I have sometimes felt not man enough. For a lesbian trying to survive in a heterosexist society, there's no easy way around this emotion. Similarly, in a white-dominated world, there's little getting around racism and our own internalization of it. It's always there, embodied in someone we least expect to rub up against. Yeah, and I think this is a great example of what we've been talking about in terms of the authors and their real honesty about 
these things that they're writing about and how they have internalized things and how they have dealt with it and how it's impacted them and their view of themselves. Uh, and I, again, like even going back to our recent fiction episode we did where I said at the top, like, I've been afraid to share this story because I'm afraid it's not feminist enough. I think that that idea haunts a lot of us. But I mean, ultimately, you want to grow and learn. And to do that, you can't hide from that part of you. Um, and that's hard. It is hard, <laughs> especially like to confront like, oh, I'm queer, but also maybe I'm homophobic too. And now how do I reconcile that? Um, it's scary and hard, but it is so valuable and needed. Right. It's this self-loathing that perpetuates because society is dictated this is not normal. Mm-hmm. And there's therefore this is not of higher rank. And yeah, throughout you see a lot of people talking about wanting to be more likely white. There's a couple of other uh, examples where it's not necessarily about whiteness, but you know, so many of the writers talking about looking to white as the standard of perfection. So therefore, feeling really just hatred for your own uh, skin color, for your melanin, whatever it may be. Uh, For me, I am considered, they keep saying, uh, a lot of Asian people say yellow. It's such a a negative connotation to me that I always say brown, which surprises a lot of Asian people. So I don't even know how to say that. But in turn, just like this level of hatred, because again, those schemes, those ideas are so uh, embedded. And again, they talk about that just as she says about how it's just a part of us. It is there. It is ingrained into us that this is what it should be. So therefore, hate yourself because you're not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee, 
Sounds perfect. Here's a quote from Aurora Levens Morales. The point of terror, of denial, the point of hatred is the tight dress stretched across my grandmother's big breast, the coquettish, well-made-up smile, grandmother, aunt, and great-aunts all decked out in sex, talking about how I'm pretty, talking about how men are only good for one thing, hating sex and gloating over the hidden filthiness in everything, looking me over in a hurry to find me a boyfriend and in that same breath, you can't travel alone, you don't know what men are like, they only want one thing. Women teaching women our bodies are disgusting and dirty, our desires are obscene, men Men are all sick and want only one sickening thing from us, saying you've got to learn how to hold out on them. You've got to learn how to hold out on them just long enough to get what you want. It's the only item you can put on the market, so better make it go far. When you have to deliver, lie down and grit your teeth and bear it because there's no escape. And that touches on a lot of stuff we we discuss on this show quite frequently, and we've even been discussing a lot in, um, not necessarily in this context, but in a lot of the movies we've chosen for our Feminist Movie Fridays is the damage that women and particularly women in our own family can do to us. But just this whole cycle of like your body is dangerous and sex is gross, but the only thing you're good for is your desirability towards men. So you're just going to have to accept it is so toxic and really sad (laughs) that you're just going to have to accept it and grin your teeth and bear it. That whole idea is real, really toxic. And here's another quote from Judith Moskovich. Think of it in terms of men's and women's cultures. Women live in male systems, know male rules, speak male language, win around men, etc. But what do men really know about women? Only screwed up myths concocted to perpetuate the power imbalance. It is the same situation when it comes to dominant and non-dominant or colonizing and colonized cultures, countries, people. As a bilingual, bicultural woman whose native culture is not American, I live in an American system, abide by an American rules of conduct, speak English when around English speakers, etc., only to be confronted with utter ignorance or concocted myths and stereotypes about my own culture, which is something else we've been talking about in a lot of these uh, Feminist Movie Fridays. Um, And just in like the reactions to them, I guess, more so Mm -hmm. of like, oh, I could never relate to this movie about an Asian young girl. That doesn't make sense when you're like, really? (laughs) Really? Right. I mean, it's it's interesting as she talks about uh, stereotypes and myths and kind of that same story, again, that ruminates for me with Yamada was talking about how people didn't realize we had a problem because the model minority meant that we didn't talk about the fact that the stereotype you placed on us, we accepted and moved forward with it. And because it was made us invisible enough and not to stir the waters, we're okay with it. But then this, again, level of like, when we do show our culture, we are ashamed to kind of like, we talk about food being really important. And uh, I know it's a big thing right now on social media when we have like, white people essentially trying new foods and then not liking it and making fun of the typically ethnic food and what that means and what that does for those cultures and how that really just, again, perpetuates a stereotype that is damaging and shaming. Um, I mean, that's kind of this whole thing with uh, coronavirus, one of the beginning things for the Asian hate, which has always been around. We know we know the history of the context of everything that happened in the past and in the way that they um, literally outlawed Asian people <laughs> to come to the U.S. Uh, but all of that to say that 
those types of conversations continue to happen and the stereotype and the fact that we continue to have to defend it or have a conversation about why it's wrong and then being told, calm down, it's not that big of a deal, uh, but then being lesser because of it. Such a such a big, bigger thing. And yes, and, and ultimately being colonized and therefore taking credit as something new for typically white and European mm-hmm. peoples. So it's like, wait... Okay, that's confusing, <laughs> but okay, I get it. Uh, moving on, it says, For women, the need and desire to nurture each other is not pathological, but redemptive. And it is within that knowledge that our real power is rediscovered. It is this real connection, which is so feared by a patriarchal world, for it's only under a patriarchal structure that maternity is the only social power open to women. Yeah, uh, yeah. I th- again, I, it's, it's so hard to describe a lot of this book because so much was accomplished um, and through all these really powerful voices. And uh, because you do have all the forwards and you've seen kind of these changes over the years, uh, just really, really recommend it. But it does sort of end on, I would say, I say hopeful note. It ends on a note of like, he, we can work together, we can do this, like we're strong and powerful. Uh, yeah, I think it's right. The strong and powerful, exactly. Sherry Morega, who is, yes, uh, the main existing person behind these republishings and, and this anthology because uh, the co-publisher, editor, uh, died a while ago. But she does have this poem in here, and I think it's it's perfect for like how she wanted this to sound, even though she is so tired. Mm-hmm. And it's called The Welder, and I'm going to try to not kill it. So here we go. Mm-hmm. I am a welder, not an alchemist. I am interested in the blend of common elements to make a common thing. No magic here. Only the heat of my desire to fuse what I already know exists is possible. We plead to each other. We all come from the same rock, ignoring the fact that we bend at different temperatures that each of us is malleable up to a point. Yes, fusion is possible, but only if things get hot enough. All else is temporary adhesions patching up. It is the intimacy of steel melting into steel, the fire of our individual passions to take hold of ourselves that makes sculpture of our lives builds buildings. And I'm not talking about skyscrapers, merely structures that can support us without fear of trembling. For too long a time, the heat of my heavy hands has been smoldering in the pockets of other People's business. They need oxygen to make fire. I am now coming up for air. Yes, I am picking up the torch. I am the welder. I understand the capacity of heat to change the shape of things. I am suited to work with a realm of sparks out of control. I am the welder. I am taking the power into my own hands. And I really love that. I think as much frustration as she has talked about throughout the book, throughout the anthology, and coming back and revisiting it over and over and over again, just mm-hmm. remembering that, yes, unfortunately, we're not here to make it pretty. We're here to make it come together and support and strong and, and untrembling. And I, I found that to be really, really beautiful, inspiring, especially coming from a voice that has seen it repeatedly and is still screaming at the top of our lungs, what is happening? We need the solution, and this has been the solution. No one's listening. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then we want to include this quote, which is sort of, I think it was compiled by several of the writers who contributed to this. They call themselves the third world women writer. A woman who writes has power. A woman with power is feared. In the eyes of the world, this makes us dangerous beasts. 
So I really liked that. I liked the this idea of this book being a powerful tool of of change, and I think that it is. And again, highly recommend that you read it. I think if you're looking to be an intersectional feminist, and this should be definitely on your list. It's a powerful tool. And and I think that it's just incredibly valuable and worthwhile. And as you said, they've done the work. So here it is. Uh, also, shout out, one of the people around the world we featured, Christos, is uh, featured throughout as well. Mm-hmm. And, and their work is phenomenal. Yes, yes. Um, so that's the end of this episode. But go check it out if you haven't read this book. And in the meantime, you know we love getting suggestions from you listeners. Uh, you can send those to us at our email, which is stuff at iheartmedia.com. You can find us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast or on Instagram at stuff I've never told you. Thanks as always to our super producer, Christina. She is our welder. She's awesome. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and thanks to you for listening. Stuff on Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank National Association, member FDIC. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. This episode is brought to you by Pedigree. If you've been looking for love at first sight, it is closer than you think. It can be found at your local shelter. So this June 7th to 9th, join the Pedigree Adoption Drive and the Pedigree brand will reimburse your dog adoption fees nationwide. Pedigree knows that bringing a dog into your home not only opens their heart, it can open yours too. Visit pedigree.com slash adoption dash drive to learn more about the adoption drive and to see full terms and conditions.